rhythm, the presence of life, the ignition, the spark, heartbeat of invention. The pulse gyrating through the system, build the grooves, you can feel it move. Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz trombonist Wayne Wallace. He opened up about his new 2019 CD called Rhythm of Invention. This five-time Grammy nominee is one of the most respected exponents of the African-American Latin music scene in the world today. This San Francisco native is known for his use of traditional forms and styles in combination with contemporary music, and he's performed, recorded, and studied with acknowledged masters of the Afro-Latin and jazz idioms like Aretha Franklin, Bobby Hutcherson, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Santana, Whitney Houston, Tito Puente, and so many others. Please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Okay, wait. Hey, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz, man. It's an honor to speak with you. It's my pleasure. So I'm going to start off here. I've, I've been a longtime fan, and I really, really dig Rhythm of Invention. And I just want to know from you, what was your artistic vision for this project? I'm trying to make sure that I don't keep duplicating albums and you know, like doing stuff or arrangements that are patterned off of other ones. And I look for material that would not only interest Latin jazz fans, but would interest people who are not familiar with the genre. So that's why I picked a lot of the standards I did, but I wanted to put our twist on it, or our spin on it, so to speak. So a lot of it's based around that. I also wanted to focus on the quintet as the foundation of everything that was going to happen. If you, if you upon repeated listening, I'm hoping that the listener will find that if they just listen to the percussionist Michael Spiro and our trap drummer Colin Douglas, I treated the record like a big band, like a sax section, a trombone section, and a trumpet section. The percussions is one layer unto itself, which is why we mixed the record the way we did. And the piano and bass have these unison through composed lines, and then they spin off where people can improvise and put their own flavor on it. And whatever I ended up on, arranging on the top of flute, violin, and trombones, etc. So I wanted to experiment with that. When we did Canto America, the record Michael and Spiral and I did, there's like that's just like chamber Latin jazz. This is different. I wanted to make it more Latin jazzy. And outside of that one tune. Uh, the rhythm of invention, which is more of a diasporic type of a thing because it combines so many different styles, I think we accomplished what we wanted to do. Right on. You know, you have such a unique sound, a unique voice in the world of jazz, and I imagine being in that fertile environment in San Francisco in the 50s at an early age really helped develop your voice. Talk to me about growing up and how you really got involved with jazz. Well, it was, all, it was always around me. My parents had Louis Jordan, Nat King Cole, the Oscar Pettiford records. Oh, uh, you couldn't, uh, I think the way about, well, I think since 1958-59, I was listening to Charlie Parker and I didn't even know who I was listening to. Was, when I got to junior high school, I went, oh, that record I've listened to, that's Charlie Parker, oh, that's Oscar Pettiford, etc. Had a wonderful band instructor in high school here in San Francisco, who let us come into his office, tennis saxophone player, and he had all these jazz records. He turned me on the John Cole train, and he, he was very cool. He would let us sit in the office and we would discuss the records. 
So I was always nurtured in that respect and a bunch of great musicians back here in the Fillmore area, the Jazz District in town. And at that point, the Lower Haight-Ashbury, before the 1967-69 era of the Peace Love Movement, was a jazz area too. So you had some pretty uh, influential trips that you went on to Cuba and Puerto Rico. Talk to me a little bit about how those influenced your sound, how you saw the world. Well, a lot of that was spurred by working with people from those areas here. I met a lot of Cuban musicians here in San Francisco, and that sparked my interest. I met people actually from Panama and different places, a lot of African musicians from Nigeria, and I began to see the connections of, once again, the the African diaspora and its tentacles spreading all over the Bay Area. You can look at Santana's work, actually. He's he's a direct outgrowth of that when you can see some of the people that he's um, collaborated with. So this is a great place for that. Not unlike New York City and or Miami, the area is just a different flavor of that basic idea of like having a port city and really strong ethnic ties to other countries coming in and creating something different. So how did your career start? What was your first gig like? How did you kind of get your feet moving in the right direction to kind of build this legacy that you have today? Oh, uh, I would... My roots go back to rhythm and blues. Started off in a James Brown copy band. Played in a touring uh, R&B band. I worked with a variety of people. Then I got hardcore into jazz, like around 17, 18, 19. Went to San Francisco State during (laughs) during the Students for Democratic for Society of the Riots. Oh, the draft, the Vietnam War. I was just in that cauldron. I mean, the Grateful Dead was coming up, the Jefferson Starship, uh, the Monterey Jazz Festival, Monterey Pop Festival. It's kind of funny you should bring that up because I'm watching all these documentaries on uh, MSNBC and CNN, and it's like a retelling of my life <laughs> watching all these. <laughs> watching all these. They saw pictures of the Haight-Ashbury in 1968, and I go, I was there. <laughs> Literally, it's like two miles from my house. Well, and, you know, things have obviously worked out. So before I get to this list of people that you perform with, there's a lot of legends and luminaries. i got a generic question, and it's this. Have you always felt at home on stage? Is that just another comfortable place for you? Do you ever get nervous? How do you approach the stage? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I have, um, I don't think I've ever been truly nervous on stage, except there was one time when I had to play a solo classical piano piece from my church, which I totally destroyed. That was the only time I really felt nervous on stage. Wow. Other than that, it's very natural. I, I feel comfortable. I've always thought that the whole thing, again, with African-style music, pick your country, it doesn't matter. There is no audience. We're all making music together. So the dancers, the musicians, the singers, I've always embraced that idea. So you played with a lot of really big names in the world of music, from Aretha Franklin, Bobby Hutcherson, um, Tito Puente, John Lee Hooker. We could just go down the list. What did you learn from the legends as you were kind of formulating your idea of who you were as a musician and where you wanted to go in life? Well, one thing about playing with people like Bobby Hutcherson, I remember, is they lift you up. You can't get on the stage and talk to them unless you're striving to make yourself a better musician. 
And a lot of those people in the true spirit of it, they don't worry about where you're at at that moment as long as you're trying to get better. And from what I've seen from people, especially African Americans, Negroes, black people, whatever the particular term is from each of those generations, they just want to see that you're striving. And then they will mentor you and nurture you. Whether it was Pearl Bailey, who else can I think of? Well, any of them. Any of them, actually. They always would take an interest in me, ask how I was doing, and if I had a question, they would take time. Lena Horne was like that. I enjoyed my conversations with Lena Horne. Because she'd been through the fire, the, the crucible. God knows. Have you ever read that book about uh, Lena Horne and her life? No, I should do that. That woman went through hell. <laughs> I wow. mean, uh, it, it's a... It's an American story. I, there's so many, Sandy Davis Jr. I've, I've read books on all of these people, the people that went through vaudeville. You can go back to Paul Robeson and go forward. I've, I've been, I'm, a, I'm a quasi student of history, and like I try to impart to my students, like when I'm teaching in Indiana, about Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, who they listen to, because Malcolm X hung out with the Duke Ellington band who was a porter on a train. He actually supplied them with marijuana when they would travel. And you can't separate these things from a cultural context of what's happening at the time. That's like saying you you can have the peace love movement, but you couldn't have LSD. All those things, good and bad, go together. You couldn't have James Brown without having the Black Panthers. So I try to take that information and pass it on in context in my history classes, uh, Parliament Funkadelic, Sly Stone, all those different things say you would not have this mu- mu- music without what was going on socially and culturally in the United States. And that applies to the Beach Boys or anybody else. So that's a gift I think I received from most of the people that I was fortunate enough that either work with or have an association with. I got a funny story for you. Did a gig with Freddie Hubbard here back like in 1972 or something. He was playing at one of the colleges. It was nice. It was great. It was was the height of his power, red clay, all of that stuff. And I'm on a plane in the 90s coming back from somewhere, and I have to go to the back of the plane, and guess who's there? Freddie Hubbard. And he remembered me. So part part of my uh, good fortune is I kind of lived in, in that era between the older jazz musicians and the younger ones. So I got the best of both worlds from both. Yeah, I guess you could say the archetypes. A lot of those people. That's wonderful, man. So you also run your own record label, and that has to be quite an empowering feeling as an artist to be able to be in control of that world. It's empowering and overwhelming at the same time. Uh, I've been up since early this morning because we have two records coming out and we're just finishing details on a booklet for one of them, record release parties, um, we're getting record reviews coming in and that's on top of whatever else I'm doing at Indiana University. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's empowering, a lot of responsibility because we have other artists so I have to make sure that they get what they deserve as far as attention and making sure that um, they get they're due. They're notoriety. So, as you mentioned, you're a historian and a teacher, and my question is this. What is your philosophy? What is your aim 
that the students, when they're done with you, walk away with? What do you want to give them? Oh, I have a couple of them, actually. I'm really fortunate. That I, I, first of all, I've had very good students. A couple of my students, are, they're making records. One got a, a scholarship to a, a music institute in uh, Norway. I'm sorry, Austria. And another one's down in L.A. working with people. I always try to help them find their own individual voice so that when they play or when they write, it's distinctive and they don't end up sounding like everybody else if possible. I know it's really hard now, especially with technology, to nurture and develop your own individual style. So that's what I strive for. And I also try to reinforce for them that at this time, there are so many good musicians, you shouldn't measure yourself by the quality of the Nevada speaker of trombone players, by other trombonists. Because there are some virtuosos out there. As long as you're doing what you're doing and you're seeking your own voice and being true to yourself and trying to improve, your, your, your artistic integrity will shine through every time. So at this point in your life, with all the roads you've been down and where you're at, are you happy with where you're at with your career? Actually, yes. Not to say that I have to stop doing anything, but I've been blessed to have opportunities of Grammy nominations that people have played with. I've won some awards um, outside of the jazz field, like the theater, uh, writing scores for that, had some music on television. What else? Uh, a lot of my... A lot of arrangements have been uh, published that I've done, and I seem I feel like I have contributed. That's a bit. That's a bit. I think I've contributed to the to the improvisational genre, whether it's jazz or Latin jazz. I think that's the most valuable thing I could say I've done with my career. I just turned sixty-seven. And people are now starting to talk to me about my career in a way that I didn't perceive it. And they, yeah. they see me in a different way. And a lot of what I do is internal, not as external. So hearing people talk about that, it made me stop a second and look at their opinion on it. So I, I would say I've had an effect on more people than I thought. I love that comment, and that's actually a perfect gateway lead-in to my final question, but I want to ask a few more before I get there. And it's, the one question I have for you as an educator is one that's, you know, clearly historian and, and all of the things, performer, record label owner. What was one of the very first jazz shows that you witnessed that really blew you away, that really made you think, this is what I want to do with my life? I can't point to one early ones in my teens, I can't point to one particular show, but it was the exhilaration of learning how to improvise. Seeing, seeing older musicians seemingly create magic out of nothing. Like, I, I never got over that when I started trying to learn how to improvise. I'd go to jam sessions and stuff, and they would effortlessly play tunes, and I'd go, I want to do that. <laughs> I typically phrase this question as, why do you love jazz? But I'm going to be more broad because I know that your interests are, there, there's a lot of things that go into this. Why do you love music? Because it gives back to you. Sometimes you forget because you get so, one can forget, 
in this in this paradigm or in this age, technology and stuff, and you get overwhelmed by everything. That when you pick up your horn or you sing or you play, well, I speak for me as a horn player. There's this whole thing of aeration where you actually your body gets invigorated because you're breathing, putting air through the horn. And you go like, wow, I forgot. <laughs> and you, just, you feel like you're new again as opposed to being worn down by everything. And when you, for me, it's the act of creation, hence the term rhythm of invention, full circle back to the album title. I'm working on, I'm writing all the time and arranging for folks. We just wrote a song. Of, um, I have another record coming out with a good friend of mine, Moy Ng, called The Blue Hour. And we just wrote a song that talks about the conflict between how, where we're at with technology and the human soul. But we did it in a very subtle way that if you don't really look at the lyrics on it, you don't get the total intent of it. And that's the thing that keeps me going is that how can we keep saying things, how can I keep saying things that interest people and make them want to come back and listen to more of the different takes that I, my songwriting partners have on life and music. The one thing you did mention at one point is, is that how you kind of have fallen in between generations in the jazz idiom. And you've obviously become a jazz elder to, to, to just, that's kind of how I'll kind of categorize it at this point because there's so many young cats that are out there. But my yeah. question to you is this, how important is it for you and your generation to carry this jazz torch, the story, the, the, the mannerisms, the way that jazz has always been a truly American unique art form? What, what kind of responsibility do you have? Or even young cats? That is a prescient question and very difficult to answer given how quickly things are changing. Long-winded answer. One of the earliest jazz books I got was with a David Baker book and then a Jamie Abersole book. I got to meet both of them, David, before he passed away. Jamie's still alive. He comes to IU all the time. And without them, I don't know if I would be a jazz musician. And as I keep reflecting on how music has evolved, not just jazz, but music, I go to some of my, my history classes, I ask people, who's your favorite rock guitar player? And they can't name anybody. It's interesting. Go, Jimi Hendrix? Uh, I've heard of him. What about <laughs> what about Eric Clapton? I've heard of him too. Do you know any of their songs? No. So, in a way, my thing is just to pass on that information and try to give it its weight of importance to the, this generation, which is very difficult because it's outside of the time it was created. It's hard to, I'll give a simpler example. I've talked to musicians, I remember there was an alto player, Clarence Warren, yes, Clarence Warren, he's passed on, local player. And the first time he heard Duke Ellington, it changed his life. He, he had never heard music like that before, and it made him want to be a musician. I can't impress that on anybody. And it, it was within that time frame of the late... 1920s, early 1930s, he said as a kid, he knew from that moment on he had to play jazz. Now, because jazz is so immediately accessible, 
whether it's the internet or in college, we don't have clubs anymore, very few, people don't, it doesn't have gravitas for the, for the younger generation that it did, unless the student is precocious in some way or another and wants to do that. And with that, I give them the warning, you can't make a living off that and you have to diversify your styles because there's very few venues for that style of jazz as jazz has progressed and evolved over time. The term jazz is almost out of date, tell the truth. At least from the traditional standpoint, I still embrace it. Anything that involves improvisational music can cover the title jazz. And then at that point, if you go to India or Cuba or any other place, they take their folk music and combine it with our term of what jazz is. You kind of led into this question here. I'm, I'm so glad. It rarely ever happens, but you really kind of gave me kind of a, uh, a snapshot of, of where I was going to go here. You know, everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, that you know who you are best. Tell me, who do you think you are? I, you know, it's funny you ask that question again. I have time to, re- I have had time to reflect on that. Uh, what is this? Twenty nine in twenty, I want to say fifteen. I was diagnosed with cancer, the same cancer that, John, that killed John McCain, and I was one of the fortunate ones that was able to survive it. I had a ton of time <laughs> to reflect on the meaning of life. Uh, and it's just like, I just think of how blessed I've been not only to still be alive, but also have something to bring to the conversation musically, hopefully from an educational standpoint, and still and hopefully still be relevant. And I look at that, and as I go forward, I just, I've always thought that every, I think Billy Strayhorn said it's really important that um, all artists are in a state of self-reflection, not critiquing or criticism, but just taking stock of where they're at and how they can evolve. I'm just trying to continue to evolve as an artist and look for different ways. Can't always be a trombonist, can't always be something, but you have to just take the sum of all your life experience and wrap it up in a way that you can still be relevant and have some information to impart to people, not some wisdom. That's a great answer, man. Hey, Wayne, thank you for taking some time out today. Thank you for all the music. I appreciate your story. No, thank you. Um, it's a great question. Thank you for the conversation. Great conversation. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and cats in San Francisco, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Wayne for his time and his cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Go to neonjazz at youtube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Move clacks all rolled in one. Stay connected through the soul of the drum. Read life through the soul of the drum. Illuminated through the glow of the sun. Rhythm of invention. Rhythm of invention. The ignition sparked the heartbeat of invention. Gyrating through the system. Build the bridge. You can feel the move. Neon Jazz.